If I were to ask you how many stars there are in the observable universe, you might reply to me with something like, well, I don't know, lots, an immense number of stars. And of course, you'd be very right if that was your answer. By one recent estimate, there are 200 sextillion stars in the observable universe. So that's the number on the screen there, uh, a 200 followed by 21 zeros. This is an unfathomably great number, isn't it? And of course, it's hard for us to measure the precise, exact, number of stars in the observable universe, but it, indeed, we need to recognize it is, in fact, a measurable quantity. If only we had the right method and the right equipment to carry out uh, the task of measuring and counting. So the point is that despite the immensity of the universe and the immensity of the number of stars, there is, in fact, a limit to the number of stars. The number of stars is not infinite. In fact, it turns out it's a measurable quantity, but again, we just don't have uh, the method and the equipment to know what that number is with preciseness. We just know that the number of stars is clearly, clearly in the gigantic range, <laughs> the unfathomably great range. Now, consider with me a fact, whoops, I'm going too far forward here. Whoa. <laughs> okay. There we go. That's where we're supposed to be. It's a good place to be, right? God. <laughs> uh, consider with me a fact now, having looked at stars for a minute, a fact that is far more stretching to our minds. And that is that God fills every single point in the entire vast universe, including this room that we're in right now, he fills it with his whole essence and is sustaining all of it 24 hours a day. Yet, the immensity of, of God is not and cannot be confined to any place or space, no matter how massive that place or that space. As Augustine said once, God is, listen to this, God is whole and entire in every place, but confined to none. Once again, God is whole and entire in every place, but confined to none. Simultaneously, the whole essence of God is here in the Snowden neighborhood and also in Nigeria and also in the Yukon and with the planet Mercury simultaneously and yet not confined to any of those places or all of them put together. And we need to note this very carefully as well. As creator, God remains separate from all that he has created, and yet his essence fills all created places. Are you still with me? 
This is a very brief description, however mind-boggling it might be, of what theologians call, call God's omnipresence, his omnipresence. Now, I read the following illustration recently, but I, can't, I couldn't remember where I read it. So I would give credit where credit's due, but I just don't remember where I read this, but it was recent. So say I installed the brightest light that I could find at Home Depot on the ceiling of a small room in my house. So I've got the light installed there. I flip the switch on and the light permeates the entire room. The light is present in every part of the room. And then with the light still on, say, then I bring an industrial strength laser light. I looked hard on Google to find that, laser light. An industrial strength laser light. So I point the laser beam at a specific point in the room, and that single point in the lit up room blazes very brightly. So this is not a perfect analogy because no analogy is perfect after all, but God is the light on the ceiling. That is his light, his essence permeates generally throughout the entire room in the illustration. The whole of his essence is in every part of the entire universe. But simultaneously, God being God can also be the laser beam present uniquely and specifically and intensely at certain places with certain people at certain times. If the light on the ceiling can be called his general presence, then the laser beam can be called his special presence. And over the course of these four Sundays of Advent, we want to meditate together on four very crucial examples of God's special presence. God with us. God present with us in laser beam fashion. In the Garden of Eden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and then on the last Sunday of Advent, in the incarnate Christ. And I'm praying that our focus on God's presence over these weeks will be a tremendous encouragement for us, to us, for the Christmas season. And then as we launch out into a new year, which we always hope will be better than the last year that's outgoing. Friends, he is with us. Believer, do you know that? He is with you. He is with us in a special way. Amen? Now, let's go to the Bible. There is a sort of passing comment in Genesis 13, verse 10, that I want us to see here, where the Garden of Eden there is called the Garden of the Lord. Or more literally, the Garden of Yahweh. So say we have a man named Larry, we'll call him Larry, okay? And Larry draws a picture. We can call the picture that he has just drawn for us the drawing of Larry, because the drawing has been created by Larry. The drawing uh, bears something of Larry's style. 
and it bears something of Larry's personality. Larry has left his mark on the drawing. Well, the garden of the Lord bears the Lord's personal stamp. The garden of Yahweh was saturated with gifts that came from Yahweh, Yahweh's gifts. And most importantly, friends, the garden of Yahweh featured the blessing of Yahweh's special laser-beamed presence. Let's go together into the garden of the Lord, into the garden of Eden, and specifically, let's notice together the places in the biblical description of the garden where God's close-up, intimate, laser-beamed presence is suggested very clearly. So come with me, first of all, to Genesis 2-7. Let's read this text carefully here. Notice that the text says that the Lord God, Yahweh God, formed, notice that verb, the man of dust from the ground. Now that word formed has to do with shaping and fashioning. There's the suggestion here of God's up close, present working and shaping of Adam. When you're forming something, you are working up close and personal with it. And the very next part of that verse describes God doing what? <sighs> Breathing into Adam's nostrils, giving Adam the breath of life. Again, there is an intimacy here these are close-up, personal actions that God performs on Adam, forming, breathing into. God's close presence here is being very pronounced to us, announced to us in the scripture. And then in the very next verse we have, God, boy, this doesn't like me today for some reason. Uh, yeah, there it is. We have God planting, notice, planting. He plants the Garden of Eden, and he puts, or he places the man that he had fashioned in the garden. Again, notice here that there is an intensity in the text about God's imminence, his presence, planting and placing. A little later on in the story, down in verses 21 and 22, God is again up close and intimately present with Adam. Listen, as he takes one of Adam's ribs and he closes up Adam's torso. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs from Adam's physical body, and closed up its place with flesh. And then God makes, builds the woman out of that rib. More of God's close up and intimate shaping and fashioning. And then notice how sweet this is. 
that finally God does what? He brings, presents the woman to Adam. Isn't this beautiful? God is there with them, doing all of this, all of these close-up and personal actions. I think J. Scott Duvall and J. Daniel Hayes uh, hit the nail on the head in their recent book, God's Relational Presence, when they say this. They say that the imagery in the creation narrative in Genesis 2 does not portray God seated upon his throne in the heavens, sending out orders to those below. Rather, it portrays him as one who is very much present down in the garden, personally involved in creation. Now, a few other things to take note of in the Garden of Eden that are related to the presence of God. First of all, notice that in Genesis 2.6, and again in Genesis 2.10, we have descriptions of the life-giving water. Isn't water great? You take a run, you can tell I haven't taken a run for a while. But when you take a run and you have some nice cold water at the end, right? Water, the life-giving water of the garden, the garden, the water that has been created by God, that has been provided by God. In verse six, we have a mist going up from the land, a mist that is watering the whole face of the ground giving life, and in verse 10, we have a river flowing out of Eden to water the garden. Life-giving, life-sustaining water in the garden. The psalmist in Psalm 36 connects God himself with beautiful, life-giving water. He says in Psalm 36, verse eight, that God supplies his people with drink from the river of God's delights. And in the next verse, the psalmist says that with God is the fountain of life. And then notice also in Genesis 2.9 that we have mention of both the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both trees being in the midst of the garden. So concerning the tree of life, Vern Poitras says that this tree, quote, this tree reflects the eternal life that God has in himself. This tree reflects the eternal life that God has in himself. Again, the tree of life reflects the eternal life that God has in himself. Poitras says further, the tree of life is an especially intensive expression of the presence of God who is life and who gives life. And T. Desmond Alexander adds here that the tree of life, he says, clearly had the potential to give immortality. This tree clearly had the potential to give immortality. The tree of life was a life-giving tree that was connected very closely with God's own eternal, perpetual life. 
So in the garden of Yahweh, in the garden of Eden, there were these life-giving provisions, beautiful life-giving provisions that were profoundly connected to God's presence the waters, and the tree of life. The Garden of Eden was dripping with the blessings of God's special presence, if we can put it, put it that way. Where God is, there is all this magnificent life and magnificent blessing, amen? And again, notice friends, this is such a beautiful, well, every part of God's word is beautiful, but this is such a beautiful thing. Concerning the waters, we notice in verse 10 through 12, that where they flowed, God also provided wealth and beauty in the form of gold, delium, and onyx stones. And the description of the treasures that God gave in, in Eden is enhanced for us in Ezekiel chapter 28, where in verse 13 of that chapter, there is specific mention of Eden, the garden of God, with a list of precious gems that were found there, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and gold. Where God dwelt in this unique and special laser-beamed way in the Garden of Eden, where his special and unfettered presence was, there was beauty, wealth, life, glory, and provision. And I want us to take note of one other verse in these opening chapters of the Bible, and that is Genesis chapter 3, 8, verse 8 of Genesis 3. Now, Genesis 3, 8, we need to recognize, comes on the heels of the tragic and very horrific moment when Adam and Eve, seduced by the serpent, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had forbidden them to eat from. They fell into sin. But for our purposes, for the moment, I want us to simply notice the opening words of verse eight, which again suggest the intimacy that God and Adam and Eve enjoyed together in the garden. So the first part of, part of the verse reads as follows, and they, Adam and Eve, listen, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. Many commentators argue that the cool of the day is a reference to the early evening hours when the heat of the sun would have diminished. So in the early evening, Adam and Eve hear with their physical ears the sound of God walking in the garden. They become aware that the fully blazing laser beam is close by. 
And with so many Bible commentators and scholars, we too ask with them, we ask, was this perhaps a habit of God to stroll like this through the garden in the early evenings with Adam and Eve for intimate, up close and personal times of fellowship? Was this a daily time of special, direct engagement with God for Adam and Eve? I mean, think of this, the one whose immensity, we said, far outstrips the reaches of the 200 sextillion stars, him walking intimately and personally each evening with his little human creatures, present with them, blazing in glory beside them, the fullness of joy. Imagine having the fullness of joy strolling right beside you in harmony, right alongside Adam and Eve. The giver of the waters, the giver of the tree of life right there with them. Is it plausible that this immense and magnificently glorious God would desire to stroll with the likes of us. Well, we've already pointed out that Genesis 3.8 comes after the tragic fall into disobedience and sin. So if this had indeed been God's habit to stroll like this with Adam and Eve every night, if this had been his habit, in times past, Adam and Eve would have thrilled at the sound of God approaching. In times past, they would have rejoiced at another opportunity to be in his laser-beamed, up-close and intimate presence. But now what happens? Now, because of their fall, things are drastically, radically different. The rest of verse 8 reads, listen to the tragedy of this. And the man and his wife did what? Hid themselves from the face, literally in Hebrew, from the face, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Tragic, yes? They, notice they make this feeble and very ridiculous attempt in their shame and in their fresh fear of God's presence, they make this ridiculous attempt to hide behind trees. Notice that. Nobody can hide from God behind a cedar tree or behind a maple tree or any other sort of tree. Adam and Eve, obviously, they didn't have Psalm 139 yet, right? They didn't have Psalm 139 where it tells us very plainly that there is nowhere we can go to hide from God. So what happens? God very quickly locates the couple and he speaks to the couple, and then God proceeds to curse the serpent, 
then the woman, and finally the man in that order. And then in his mercy, God clothes the couple, completely undeserved, but he does it, clothes them. They now find themselves ashamed of their nakedness, so he clothes them. And then God exiles them out of the garden. And he sets up cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve are banished. They lose the tree of life. They lose the life-giving waters of Eden. They lose God's happy provision of all of those jewels, all of that wealth. And most importantly, Adam and Eve lose the intimate, up-close, personal presence of God. There is alienation now where there had been such blissful, beautiful harmony. Now childbirth, women say amen if you've had a child, childbirth gets really difficult. Work gets difficult. Death now comes running into the picture. Struggle comes, heartache comes, tears of grief, violence and fracture and conflict come. Cosmic-sized tragedy, cosmic-sized tragedy. But my friends, I want us to see this. I want us to see the blessed and amazing thing. And I do mean blessed and amazing. Right from the very beginning, right from the Garden of Eden, we see our God desiring, purposing, to fellowship with his human creatures in a special way. We see God's desire to be present with his people. And God's desire, we need to understand, never changes. Amen? His desire never changes. Despite human mutiny against him, despite our willful rebellion against him, despite human sin and human transgressions against him, God still wills to be with human beings. Blessed fact. Merciful fact, wonderful fact. In fact, as Michael Morales has put it, he says, it's the expulsion from the divine presence, Garden of Eden, that is the central tragic event that drives the whole history of redemption, determining and shaping the ensuing biblical narrative that follows Genesis 3. Indeed, he says, all, all of the drama of Scripture is found in relation to this singular point of focus, Yahweh's opening up the way for humanity to dwell in his presence once more. God's desire to be present in a special way with his people and for his people did not change. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. And in this Advent sermon series, we'll be looking at God's determination to be present with us 
as after Adam and Eve's tragic fall into sin, God comes again in laser-beamed fashion to dwell amongst his people in the tabernacle, then in the temple, and then most gloriously, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ. Isn't it good news for us that God has determined all by himself to be with the likes of us? Friends, it's good news. God has made this decision without our input. <laughs> we like to give our input. God, maybe you should do this. And do God has made this decision without any of our input that he wants to be with us. Independent of our choosing, God establishes this, that he will be with us. Wow. And confirmation of his decision to be our God, to be with us, to be present with us, runs like a blessed thread all the way through the Bible, the entire Bible. God desired that the harmony of the garden between himself and his people be restored. Listen to God's determination throughout the Bible. So I'm going to read you a bunch of texts here very quickly. Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Leviticus 26, verse 12. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Jeremiah 7, 23. Obey my voice and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Jeremiah 11:4. Listen to my voice and do all I command you, so shall you be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Jeremiah 30, verse 22, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel 14, 11, that they may be my people, and I may be their God. Ezekiel 36, 28, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel 37, 27, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Matthew 1, 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Revelation 21.3, speaking of the new Jerusalem that awaits us as believers, the voice from the throne says this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. All along, right from the start in the garden and proceeding all the way into God's eternal future, he has purposed resolutely, friends, that he will be with us, that he will be our God, that we will be his people, that his dwelling place will be with those who he has saved by his son. The cross of Jesus Christ, the tree of Jesus, where Jesus became a curse for us, is the means 
that God has provided to forgive us, yes, and to right our relationship with him so that we can again have access to another tree, to the tree of life, and so that we can enjoy, like Adam and Eve of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we can enjoy the blessed glory of his eternal, up-close presence in the new creation forevermore. There are pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. Now, isn't it amazing as we wrap this toward a close, isn't it amazing and isn't it wonderful and isn't it beautiful how the Bible, notice, both starts and closes with pictures of Eden. With pictures of that perfect place of God's presence where human beings are dwelling in such special intimacy with him. We've already trekked a little bit through the opening chapters of the Bible, but have you noticed how at the end of the Bible in Revelation, that the first heaven and earth on which Adam and Eve were planted, which we are planted, gives way to a new heaven and earth on which believers, believers in the new obedient Adam, Jesus Christ, are planted forever. And how Revelation 21.6 mentions the spring of the water of life, just as we had those life-giving waters in the original Eden. And how in Revelation 21.18 through 21, we're told also how the new Jerusalem features gold, jasper, and sapphire, and emerald, and beryl, and topaz, etc., hearkening back to the description of all those precious stones in Eden that we had especially in Ezekiel chapter 28. And we also hear in Revelation 21, 22, and 23 about how God's presence and his glory blaze in the new Jerusalem. There's no more need for sun or moon. His glory, his presence blaze in a way not unlike the blazing glory that we had in Eden. And then in Revelation 22, verse 1, we have the river of the water of life, as there had been life-giving waters in Eden, and the tree of life appears again, blessedly, in Revelation 22, 2. The only two places where the tree of life is mentioned in the entire Bible are here in Revelation 22:2, at the end of the Bible and in those opening three chapters of Genesis, which is a very strong suggestion that Eden and the New Jerusalem are linked very closely. But here's the thing, in typical scriptural fashion, the New Jerusalem is not simply Eden revived, but rather the new Jerusalem is Eden escalated and Eden souped up. And the souped up Eden is what awaits us believers in Jesus. And personally, I don't know about you, but I can't wait. Amen. Amen. Are you with me this morning? I know it's been a long morning. And so our Advent focus 
is then on God's unchanging determination to be present with his people. It's a story of having the intimacy of, of the, the divine presence, but then in our human defiance, losing it. It's a story of the presence coming again in an especially pronounced way in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple and finally in full glory in the manger in Jesus Christ. And it's a story of us waiting and pining today for his return, amen? And for the new Jerusalem where we will dwell with him up close, intimately, super personally for all eternity. But over this Advent season, we need to recognize right now, believers in Jesus Christ who are born again and have been regenerated, that the Spirit indwells us, yes? He has indwelt us since we were converted to Christ. His presence is with us now, though not in the up-close, blazing, super-intimate way and measure that it will be in the new Jerusalem. But God's presence is with us now, and that means what? It means provision. God's presence with us now means leading. He leads us. He guides us. God's presence with us now means strength for all that we face. God's presence with us now means consolation in times of difficulty. God's presence with us now means safety. Through this life and through the door of death, it means safety and it means life and it means enablement and it means gladness, amen? So friend, bow before his presence this week. Walk in his presence. Tell him your distress. Get with him and tell him your pain. Thank him for his love. Ask him to supply your need, whether it is an emotional need, a physical need, a relational need, whatever the need might be, but just spend time in his presence. Humble yourself before him in obedience as he leads you. Believer in Jesus, the God whose immensity outstrips the entire universe is with you always and in every situation. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a God who is not aloof from us. You are transcendent over us, but yet you are imminent with us, present with us. What a marvel, what a wonder that you, the maker of the universe and all things, would condescend to dwell with us. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and I pray for each and every person in the sound of my voice this week that they would, quote unquote, cash the check of your presence fall before you this week. For some, uh, maybe prayer life has not been a priority, but Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would encourage and nudge and draw us all to get with you this week. Fall on our faces. You are good. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.